0: Hey everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche show. Today's guest is Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and the best-selling author of multiple books, including his newest, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Scott is also the co-host of the Pivot podcast with Kara Swisher and the host of the Prof G Pod. In this episode, Scott and I talked about the erosion of the American middle class and what that means for the social fabric of the country. We also talked about why we need strong, viable men and how dating apps are hurting us. We also discussed how universities are being treated as luxury brands and why they need to start expanding freshman seats. We also talk about why debt forgiveness for student loans was a terrible idea, and we got Scott's thoughts on Elon Musk, Twitter, and social media, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Scott, and I think you will, too. Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business and the best-selling author of multiple books, including your newest, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Great to see you again, and great to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thanks, Julie. Good to be with you.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have this conversation. And Scott, I loved your book. I loved the different charts. And I'm going to start with one line that just kind of punched me in the face because it was like one of those aha moments. And you wrote that in America, it's never been easier to become a billionaire, but it's never been harder to become a millionaire. And I think that says a lot about where we are. I was hoping you could kind of share more on that, that thought there and what it says about the state of the country
1: sure so actually income mobility has stayed relatively consistent over the last 20 or 30 years about 11 percent of people in the lowest income quintile get to the top income uh, quintile but what you have is it should be it should be better than that there should be more churn there should be more opportunities to move up income classes because productivity continues to be up and to the right but we've had this sort of hunger games win or take most phenomena in our economy. And that is, I'll use my class as an example. The last class I taught at Stern was 350 kids. When I graduated from business school, Julia, it was the majority of us went on to make very good livings. And there'd be one or two kids um, that killed it, made a lot of money. And there'd be one or two that struggled with addiction, who kind of came off the rails, if you will. But there was a crowding in the middle. And Now, I would say that a class of 300 or 350 second-year MBAs, there's going to be a billionaire in that class, either through alternative investments, hedge funds, or starts a tech company. Uh, There's going to be a billionaire. And at the same time, I think there's going to be more kids, maybe a dozen or two dozen, that will be dependent upon their parents. And that is, uh, we've had... um, It used to be that pretty much anyone who played by the rules you were born in 1945 there was a 92 percent chance you're gonna do better than your parents now it's a 49 percent chance so it's it's there's going to be you're everyone's going to know someone who knows a billionaire but unfortunately um kind of playing by the rules is no longer going to be a guarantee of a great middle-class lifestyle uh so I think like I said there's there's this sort of this erosion of the middle and more people are having you know can fall out of the middle class or get out of the middle class but we don't seem to be growing the middle class.
0: Yeah, like as you point out in the book, like that is kind of your grand economic um, kind of thesis is like the the middle class and the importance there. And you know, um, you mentioned like some of your students, like you you expect dozens will be reliant on their parents. And I'm a millennial and one of the stats you shared in the book was a millennial born in 1984, I'm 88, but um, who'd be 37 today only has a 50% chance of like doing better than their parents. How did Scott, like, how did we get to that point? Because that, that's really disappointing if you don't have a chance of doing better than your parents or a, a, a much lower chance.
1: Yeah, it's really the fundamental compact that a populace has with its society. If you think about it, we pay 23% of our GDP goes to the government, and that's our connective tissue, our institutions. And the handshake that a population has with its government and its society writ large is that if I play by the rules, my kids will do better than me and that's that is the kind of the basis of evolution that the next generation is a little bit stronger smarter faster in a capitalist society we measure that by their income and people will say that the entrenched and older people will claim that it's a function of network effects and globalization and it's just not true in about 1971 up until 71 if you looked at productivity in america and wage growth they were like two snakes uh, intertwined. They were inextricably linked. If the nation became more productive because of manufacturing technology or management innovation or technological progress, wages went up. Everybody got to share in this productivity. Productivity continues to go up and to the right for the last 50 years. We'll produce more output in a single month now than we did in an entire year in the fifties. But in the early seventies, those two lines disarticulated and wage growth has gone flat. So all of a sudden the majority of our population, has not had a raise on an inflation adjusted basis. But the folks that are able to tap into kind of this uh, information age economy, born into the right family, um, you know, quite frankly, just get lucky um, or have the right credentialing, uh, have garnered the massive uh, gains here. In other words, it's become sort of a winner take most economy where one e commerce firm has 50% share, one social media and one search company have 75% and 93% share. Uh, respectively. We've sort of lost this. If you think of antitrust, we used to go in and break big companies up and sort of populate or oxygenate the ecosystem. We used to have a more progressive tax structure where we would oxygenate the middle class. And there's this, this myth that the middle class is a self-occurring organism. And it's not, it's sort of an accident. It was self, it was self, um, uh propagating from like 45 to 95 because America had a monopoly on the world's manufacturing base because we had leveled the number two and three economies Germany and Japan respectively but unless you consistently reinvest in the middle class yeah uh, you're gonna have you know this kind of Thomas Piketty effect where the rich and powerful weaponized government and put in place tax policies that benefit them so for example and I use myself as an example um I sold my last company L2 to a publicly traded company the first $10 million in proceeds to me as the founder and original shareholder were tax-free. That just makes no sense. Uh, people your age uh, uh, rent and make the majority of their income from current income. And the two biggest tax breaks are capital gains tax break and mortgage interest. Who owns homes and gets a lot of their income from stocks? People my age. Who rents and makes their money from current income? People your age. So we've had this concerted effort and an effective effort to weaponize government, mostly by people my generation in the entrench to dislevel the playing field and move capital from younger people to older people we talk a lot about income inequality and that's rampant but what we don't talk about is something that I think is more mendacious and that is age inequality and that is if you're over the age of 70 40 years ago or now you're on average 72 percent more wealthy than you were 40 years ago someone your age it's on average 22 percent less wealthy the percentage of wealth as registered by or the wealth as registered by the percentage of GDP controlled by people under the age of 40 over the last 40 years has gone from 19% of GDP to 9%. So we have implemented policies that have effectively cut the wealth of younger people in half. And it's not because we're not more productive, it's not because we don't produce more, it's not because we don't have incredible prosperity, we've just decided If there's a crisis that might threaten the wealth of older people, whether it's a pandemic or a stock market crash, we're going to come in and bail out the existing shareholders. And when you don't have that churn, when you don't have that disruption, you're just robbing from future generations. The reason I'm economically successful or secure is because in 2009, Apple and Amazon were allowed to fall to their natural levels. And I was coming into my prime income earning years, and I was able to go in and buy Apple and Amazon and watch them go up 12 and 18 fold respectively since then. Mm-hmm. Now, when we have an exogenous shock, specifically the novel coronavirus, we decide, okay, a million people dying is bad. But what would be tragic is that the NASDAQ went down. So when you bail out the baby boomer who owns a restaurant through something that sounds really nice, the PPP program, all you're doing is robbing from the recent graduate of the Brooklyn Culinary Academy that wants her chance to come in and buy stuff on the cheap. Uh, it says, we have decided that the key is to maintain wealth. America used to be the best place to get rich. Now it's the best place to stay rich.
0: Yeah, as you put it, it's the best place to stay rich. Um, This wasn't necessarily in the book, but I do want to bring it up to you because I think it's relevant to what you just unpacked there about um, the older generation is kind of put it kind of robbing the younger generations. What are your thoughts on social security? Um, Because I've heard this described by folks as like intergenerational theft, What are your thoughts there?
1: So I want to be clear. Social security has been arguably one of the most successful social programs in history. You used to have, it's cut, it's basically eliminated senior poverty. That's, That's a victory lap and we should take it. The question is, what should the program look like now? And there's just no getting around it. You have the largest transfer of wealth every year from people under the age of call it 50 or 60 to people over the age of 65 in the form of social security. So every year we transfer a trillion and a half dollars to the wealthiest cohort in the history of the planet and that's US seniors. And I'm not suggesting we cut it off. I'm suggesting we need much more severe means testing. I'm suggesting we dramatically raise the age limit because now people are living much longer they're working well into their 70s or 80s we have a president who might be 86 the last time he leaves the west lawn and marine marine one i should not get social security my dad should not be getting social security and people say well i paid into it no the majority of people who paid into social security are getting two to three x out what they put in and it's called social security tax not social security pension fund And a tax is meant to say, I'm going to make a contribution to society. Even if I don't go to the parks, I pay a fee. Even if I'm a pacifist, I'm going to pay some money that goes to the U.S. Navy. And elected representatives get to decide what is better for the Commonwealth as a whole. And it just makes no sense to me that a younger generation that is not doing as well as their parents, and that's a fact now, continues to... Uh, transfer wealth such that Nana and pop-up can upgrade from Carnival to Crystal Cruises and it's a third rail of politics and what do you know why because the average age of our elected representatives is 62 every year it gets older there's between a 90 and 95 percent chance an incumbent will get re-elected because of gerrymandering 30 50% of our population is under the age of 38, but 5% of our elected representatives are under the age of 38. And the first two states that kind of dictate the presidential election, Iowa and Maine, happen to be two of the oldest states in the union and old people to their credit vote. So we have a series of policies that vastly um, advantage older Americans. The Senate minority leader is 81. The Senate majority leader is 71. The Speaker of the House is 82. Do these people really understand and relate to a 24 year old single mother? So what do you know? Social security is getting the greatest cost of living increase in its history this year. And that child tax credit didn't make its way into the infrastructure bill. So we need to do what past generations have done in that this current generation of the wealth, the wealthiest generation in history, seniors, they need to pay it forward. And that is to look back and say that America is always invested and it's young people. It's always invested in its middle class. And now my generation could easily be called the greediest generation in the world. It, it, a trillion and a half dollars going from young people to old people makes absolutely no sense.
0: Yeah. I'm just amazed at like how many stats, you know, and that's just incredible when you share it, Scott. And, um, you know, you're talking about like seniors really need to pay it forward. It makes me wonder, like, what happens if they don't – are people too self-interested and if we don't, like what does it mean for like the social fabric of the country?
1: You end up with a, a young populace that is angry and is living with – over 50 percent of people in the age of 30 aren't living with a romantic partner or friend. They're living at home. Um, more young people are not – for, for the first time in America's history, a man or woman at the age of 30 isn't doing as well as his or her parents at the age of 30. And when that compact has been broken, if you bring it down to a household level, it translates to rage and shame, because not only are you are not doing as well as your parents, but you get reminders every day from your roommates, mom and dad. And that creates uh, anger. And it also creates a desire for volatility. OK, this guy is a misogynist and a weirdo and, and an insurrectionist and, and an election denier, but he's different. So I'm going to vote for him because this whole... You know, limousine liberal, you got yours and a lot of wave, you know, a lot of arm waving about the injustices of the world. But meanwhile, you're killing it and my generation isn't doing well. So I think a lot of what we've seen around nationalism and what feels like fascism, light and election denial and insurrection. It's not that people, young people endorse that or that our society endorses that. It's just that they just want something radically different. So whoever offers literally the most change and when you show up and you start saying profane, profane, Vulgar things like, wow, that shit's different. I've never had a presidential candidate say that. So, you want volatility. The most violent, unstable nations in the world have one thing in common, and that is young people that aren't doing well. So, what you end up with is a society that embraces, or its younger people embrace volatility and embrace anything that resembles change and destabilizes society. And I think, I actually think last week was an enormously important week. In the american story because it feels like our institutions are holding that we have kind of checked back on this exceptionalism and individualism and we've pushed back on election denial we've pushed back on insurrection and i think it was a wonderful moment but be clear when young men especially young men when young men have nothing to lose they start getting violent and as you know a form of violence is i just want change if you're in prison you want revolution If you don't have a lot to lose, if you don't have a mate, if you're not attaching to school, if you're not attaching to work, if you don't have a job, Christ, let the streets burn. And so the the fear or the risk is that you end up with an unstable society, full stop.
0: Mm -hmm. You wrote in the book, um, and I might be paraphrasing here, that broken, lonely males are the most dangerous cohort. And I think that's kind of what you're alluding to here. So it seems like that could be symptomatic of some other underlying issues here. Like, what do you think are the, the drivers of this, That maybe some that we have not discussed yet?
1: So it's a complicated issue, but the go-to uh, amongst people is always mental illness. And so let's go to the most UVA. I got two text messages yesterday. I'm at that age where a lot of my friends' kids are in college. I got two text messages yesterday from close friends. like everything's fine uh my daughter my son who's at uva are fine because people were pinging them because they saw they heard about the shooter at uva and i thought that's the world we live in where you get a text message from a friend telling you your your kid's okay at a place like uva after there's a shooter and here's the thing we knew who the shooter was before we knew who the shooter was we knew it wasn't a soccer mom we knew it wasn't a recent immigrant In their 50s, what we knew was it was a young man that was not attaching to work, school or a relationship. And uh, what's happened over the last 40 years is that we've leveled the playing field for for younger women, especially in education. And as a result, uh, young women have just blown by men and a lot of the jobs that have been outsourced because of globalization have been especially hard on non-educated men who went into kind of trades jobs, more frontline manufacturing jobs. In addition, our education system is just biased towards towards uh, uh, females and against males. It is very difficult. Uh, you know, A boy's prefrontal cortex is one to two years behind of females and school rewards discipline and kind of that executive functioning that girls develop sooner. An 18 year old girl applying to college Who's competing against an 18-year-old boy is effectively competing against a 16-year-old girl, and as a result, over the next five years, we're going to have two females graduate for every one male. And you think, well, okay, it's about time you guys had a 400-year head start, but it's going to have pretty big knock-on effects, and that is, unless we figure out a way to f- figure out on-ramps for undereducated uh, males, either through vocational programs or some sort of leveling up when we when it was 60 40 male female college attendance we decided to level up women I think that was the right decision now that it's going to be 66 33 female to male college grads there really isn't any discussion of leveling up young men and the result is uh and again on the left we don't like to talk about this but women have different mating criteria than men women made socioeconomically horizontally and up women horizontally I'm sorry, women made horizontally and up, men horizontally and down. In some, a female college graduate isn't interested in being romantically involved with a, with a male who's a non-college grad. So you're going to see lowering birth rates. You're going to see lower household formation. You're going to see, you know, kind of a, a, what you would call, in my opinion, fewer connections or fewer formation of what is the elemental foundation of happiness in any society. And that is loving relationships and, and households. And I want to be clear, the key, that elemental foundation doesn't have to be heteronormative. It can be two women, it can be two men, it can be a a grandmother partnering with her daughter, it can be two brothers moving in together to to share expenses. But that's the basis of happiness. That's the basis of economic productivity. And when you have young men who aren't economically viable, we are producing way too many non-economically and emotionally viable men. And they're living at home. I, I get pushback on this talk track from feminists who believe that I'm saying, Scott, threatening society with dangerous young men is just repackaged violence. I, I think there's I think that's a, there's some legitimacy to that argument. Uh, where were you 40 years ago? I mean, well, okay, I was in junior high school, but society was there for women 40 years ago. It was if you walk by an NYU Stern, you can't walk by a bulletin board without saying women in leadership, young black female leaders cohort, coffee clatch, coffee clatch for women in business. There's nothing like that for, for men at that age anymore. The, the, the general assumption was, you have so many built-in systemic advantages that we don't need to worry about you. And the reality is young men are four times more likely to kill themselves, three times more likely to be addicted, 12 times more likely to be incarcerated, and now 50% less likely to graduate from college And the cohort I hear from that's really supportive of this talk track is mothers. And it usually goes something like this. I have one daughter in Chicago at a PR firm. I have one daughter at graduate school in Penn. And my son's in the basement vaping and playing video games. So we have an education system that's biased against men. Boys are twice as likely on a behavior-adjusted basis to be suspended as girls. Same exact infraction. If you're a boy, you're twice as likely to be suspended. If you're a black boy, you're five times as likely to be suspended seven and ten high school of valedictorians are girls and then college attendance is off the charts for girls now versus boys so let me skip to a solution because the problem even feminists are are now starting to say a big problem for young women is the lack of viable men that that's an issue and so the solution i think or one of the solutions is I think we need to dramatically increase our investment in vocational programming. College isn't for everybody. Um, And 50% of Germans have some sort of vocational certification. In America, it's 5%. If you look at the term apprentice on LinkedIn, 33 out of 1,000 jobs or LinkedIn profiles in Germany and the UK, their title is apprentice. In the US, it's three. We've fallen into this. This trope or this orthodoxy that you have failed as a parent unless your kid gets to MIT and is at KKR or Google. And that's not true. We need massive investment and also to force our great public universities to start offering non traditional, not for necessarily four year liberal arts degrees, but two year degrees in health tech, two year degrees in cybersecurity, one year degree in specialty construction. We're going to need hundreds of thousands of qualified construction workers to build solar farms and nuclear power plants we're going to need people who can install energy efficient hvac repair electric vehicles the real economy has a lot of great jobs out there but instead we've decided you failed as an individual as a young person and as a parent unless you go sort of this traditional information economy route and i also think we need to dramatically expand the number of freshman seats at our public universities because the idea of trying to have affirmative action for men, I just don't think it's politically viable. And so the question is, well, okay, do we need fewer people of color and fewer women in college? No, we need more people of color and more women in college. And we need dramatically more men. I think we need to double the number of freshman seats at universities. The fact that these many of these universities are sitting on endowments, that is the rivals of the GDP of a Latin American nation, and yet haven't expanded their freshman class seats so, so they can feel that they're prestigious, and turn themselves into Birkenbags. I think it's morally corrupt. They should lose their nonprofit status. So I, I think there's, you know, the cohort that is most uh supportive of this, this notion around trying to figure out ways to start to re-level up men is mothers. And we also need to bust out of this mythology that when you advocate for young men, it's a zero sum game and somehow that's anti women it's not when you advocate for people of color you're not being racist against white people when you advocate for women you're not being anti male and when you advocate for young men uh, after looking at the data it doesn't in any way mean that you're anti male and I'll, I'll just end my word salad on this yeah I... those of us those of us who have advocate for young men have had kind of the the you know <laughs> have had a difficult time because there's a lot of people saying they advocate for men and it's thinly veiled misogyny. There's a lot of people on TikTok who seem to think that advocating for men is talking about women as property. And I think that's really holding um, progress back.
0: Yeah, we we know exactly who you're referring to. And we I can say like we need more like role models like yourself and to have this conversation, like the need for, you know, viable, high quality men who can be in great relationships. And um, it's not necessarily easy to find. But let me ask you this, Scott, because you say the mothers really support this. And I can tell you as as a, a woman, I support it too. Why do you think you get pushback on this?
1: Well, the traditional anyone oftentimes, I mean, let's be honest, men have had a 400 year head start. When I, Even in my lifetime, in the 90s, when I was raising tens of million dollars for internet companies, I couldn't think of a woman who was raising money, much less a, a person of color. It was all white dudes. And so uh, men, specifically white men, specifically white heterosexual men, have had enormous advantage. And then when the, the playing field was leveled, especially between women and men, educationally, women just blew by men. They just blew by them. And that's probably a good thing on many levels. Um, but I think people immediately gag or check back and say, okay, you know, where were you? Or, or uh, isn't it time? Or, you know, a 20 year old male that doesn't have very many prospects and isn't maturing as quickly and is getting confusing messages from the marketplace around what it means to try and find a mate or how to behave at work. Silence is violence. Oh, but wait, you should just listen. Um, or maybe doesn't have the biological skills to succeed. Um, I mean, I see to my own boys, Julia. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to balance between, I have a 12-year-old son and a 15-year-old, and with my 12-year-old especially, I'm trying to balance between instilling grit and discipline and at the same time recognizing he's just gone to a school where it's 80-minute classes. I think it's mildly torturous for him to sit still for 80 minutes and learn French. And I just see a big difference between the girls and the boys. But I think the pushback is and I think some of it is is warranted it's like look you know finally women are getting their due finally finally and you're out there talking about you know uh, problems that society is tilted against men and what I'm what I'm trying to say is we need a healthy ecosystem we need incentives to create a great ecosystem we need great partnerships we need people to establish friendships, mentorships, and romantic relationships. And a key component of that is economically and is is economic and and, and emotionally viable young men. And we're just not producing enough of them. And I think it's in all of our interest to figure out how how do we level up those people? Two years ago, those statements were seen as misogynistic. And in the last two years I can't tell you how much the world has changed. Uh, Richard Reeves from the Brookings Institute just wrote a landmark book called The Boys to Men. You are now seeing uh, uh, what I'll call feminist journalists embrace this notion that young men are in fact failing and it's an issue we need to openly discuss. But the world has changed a lot in the last 24 months in terms of its uh, not having an automatic gag reflex whenever you advocate for young men.
0: Yeah. I got to say, like, I feel incredibly lucky that I found like a life partner who's just one of these incredible, viable, amazing men. But as someone who was in New York City, I got to say it was not easy to to find a partner. And I want to hear your thoughts because I know you have thoughts on the rise of dating apps and how they are, you know, um, kind of making it difficult for folks to find a partner.
1: So mating has changed dramatically, specifically how we initiate the mating rituals. There's a lot of rituals. You meet somebody, you engage in a conversation, there's a series of rituals. You have sex. You fall in love. You decide whether you want to have a monogamous relationship and whether you want to partner economically. Households where there's two people get wealthier much faster. They're much more stable. Uh, and I think young men especially need guardrails. I think a relationship is a fantastic guardrail. Just as CEOs need boards. Uh, I mean, Sam Bank Friedman. Or Sam Bank Friedman. Excuse me. What? A, what a shocker! A young man that didn't have a board took really stupid risks. And guess what? That's true of every young man. That they take stupid risks unless they have guardrails, and having having a girlfriend say, "No, if you get high every night, I'm not interested in having a relationship with you. You need to get a job. You need to occasionally shower and put on a clean shirt." Uh, these are fantastic guardrails uh, for young men. And what happens is mating used to be kind of a third work, a third school, a third friends in terms of where you met mates. It's now post-pandemic. It was a third, and then it moved to a third online dating. And post-pandemic, it's up, it's almost hitting two thirds. That's where people are initiating relationships. And again, the moment you start talking about distinctions between men and women, you get pushback. People are like, well, it's non-binary. What about people in the middle? And I want to acknowledge there's there's a spectrum here. But the majority of research shows that 95% of people identify as either um uh, as heterosexual and as at one end of the spectrum or the other. That's I'm not, and I'm I want to be clear. If you're in the middle, Godspeed. If you're trans, you're subject to the same freedoms and liberty and 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 love as anyone else. But I'm talking about the 90 to 95 percent of people that would call themselves binary, and the majority of those people are now initiating relationships or looking to initiate relationship on a dating app that's how we meet each other we don't go to the mall we don't go to the movies most of us aren't going to work anymore so we go to the dating apps and what's what's different between men and women quite frankly is that women are just more choosy and what you used to have was geography ring fencing used to start some of that out and that was if you went to temple every Friday night and there were eight single men and eight single women they kind of slowly but surely paired off and the wonderful thing about human sexuality is that in person other things take over, smells you can't even smell, pheromones, body language, vibe, humor. Uh, but when you're in a two, two-dimensional format of online, uh, it gets very, very one-dimensional. Specifically, women made, uh, uh, find three things attractive in men. Number three, kindness. Number two, intellect. And number one, resources. And so when everyone has access to everyone else online, women are able to implement their much finer filter And if there's 50 men on Tinder and 50 women, 46 of the women will show all of their attention to just four men, leaving 46 men vying over four women. And if the app economy, the dating app economy were an actual economy, it would have greater inequality than Venezuela. Meaning that income inequality or mating inequality is more dramatic than income inequality in Venezuela. So what's happened? If you're in the top 10% of attractiveness of men You live in the right zip code, your Rolex accidentally makes it into the profile picture, you're okay looking. And most importantly, you went to Princeton and you work at you work at Amazon. You get swiped right like crazy. You get not the top 10% of men on dating apps are getting 90% of the opportunities. And it leads to what I call Porsche polygamy. It does not encourage long-term Relationships, either. And it also probably leads to bad behavior. 50 through 90 for men in terms of attractiveness do just okay. And then the bottom 50, Julia, are just shut out. No hope, discouraged. Uh, There's hundreds of women here, not one showed an interest. I swiped right on 30 of them, and not one is interested in having coffee with me. It's like reconfirmation or cementing the notion that they don't have any value in our society. And then the way I would describe it for women, men are much less choosy. Oh, she looks nice. Oh, she's cute. Oh, I, I, I like blonde. Whatever it is, men are very visual, but they're less choosy. They will swipe right on a lot of people. But generally what you have for women is it's just gotten a little bit shittier for everybody on the female side. But for men, the bottom half, shut out. Absolutely shut out. I have parents who have asked their young men, their young sons to get off the dating apps because they found it was literally just destroying uh their self-esteem so I, I, i i want to move to a solution i think government i think we need to actively invest in third spaces community service national service parks leagues i think companies play a role here you know we've decided that it's not okay for people to have relationships at work and i think that once you're above a certain seniority at work you take that off-campus because there's too much opportunity for you to abuse your power or to mistake kindness for sexual interest because people have a vested interest in laughing at your jokes and complimenting you because you have power over them but in the last year there's been three weddings for my last firm l2 and one of the weddings was two people that met at l2 and that's wonderful there's nothing wrong we need more places for young people to meet and establish, reestablish mating based on the criteria of more what I'll call non-app driven attributes such that they can establish relationships. And in addition, level up men. So they're just bottom line is they're just more attractive to women. But mating mating for young men has become a winner a take most environment. It's never been better to be a 26 year old with a BMW and a graduate degree from Penn working, you know, working at Salesforce, and it's never been worse to be every other male.
0: Yeah. Um, you talk about dating apps, like hurting self-esteem. So I, it also makes me wonder, gosh, like, if your self-esteem gets hurt there, then maybe you're even too scared to go out um, to the bar and meet someone the more traditional way as well. Imagine Maybe that's one of the other consequences there. Um, you mentioned... Colleges earlier. And I want to talk about this because you are a professor and you have a lot of students and you've described them in the past to me, the colleges, colleges today, universities today as luxury brands. How did we get there? And do you think that's ever going to change?
1: So uh, when I applied to UCLA, the admissions rate was 76%. You know, it, it was, so three out of four people that applied got in. And the first time I applied, I got rejected. I was one of the four people that didn't get in. I was unremarkable. I had a 3.1 GPA, I had 1100 on the SAT. So I was not very good academically, but I didn't test well either. And uh, I was raised by a single mother that lived and died a secretary. We didn't have any money. I didn't have the confidence to apply to a school outside of the city. I knew I'd have to live at home. So I was either going to UCLA or to Cal State Northridge, or I wasn't going to college. And I went to Cal State Northridge and the place just felt kind of flat, not that much fun. So I'm like, I don't wanna go here. So I thought, oh, I'll go to UCLA, applied, didn't get in. So my dad, my parents aren't very sophisticated people. They both left school, you know, were pulled out of school in the eighth grade in the UK to work. So my dad got me a job paying 18 bucks an hour, which seemed like a lot of money in 1985. And I remember I literally spent my days in closets installing shelving. And I remember after three weeks of this going home, I was living with my mom and saying, is this it? This is my life. I'm going to be in a closet installing shelving the rest of my life. And she said, well, apply again. And I applied. And I remember the day the admissions person from UCLA called me and said, Sky, I've got to be honest, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California. And we're going to give you a break here. And they let me in. And I rewarded them with a 2.27 GPA. You know, I just spent the majority of my years at UCLA getting high and watching Planet of the Apes. And then, you know what Berkeley did? You know what U- University of California did again? They let me into graduate school at Berkeley. Can you imagine that? And then I got my shit together. I got my shit together. I, I got it, I like a lot of men, I got my act together in my late 20s. Some things happened to me, some good, some bad. But just, I got my act together. And this is, this is not a not-so-humble, humble brag. In the last 10 years, I've paid $34 million in federal income taxes. So it was not only the right thing to do morally, it was smart for the economy. Because no university, no government, no bloodline can predict greatness at the age of 18. You just don't know. So the idea is you wanna water as many plants as possible because you just don't know what's gonna grow into a redwood, right? You just don't know. And this year, the admissions rate at UCLA will dip below 10%, meaning even if they find some kid who's the son of a single mother, and they see some chance there. They see something. They don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the capacity to let that kid in. They've got to go with the lacrosse captain who's built wells in Africa and has patents pending for a cancer vaccine. So the two cohorts getting into our elite universities and our public schools are the children of rich kids, who are 77 times more likely to get into an elite university than the bottom 99%. Or in order to feel better about that, what I refer to as the freakishly remarkable. And most of us aren't freakishly remarkable. And something that hurts us is we're all under the delusion as parents that our kid is going to be that one freakishly remarkable kid. And I can prove to every parent in the United States or globally that 99% of our kids are not in the top 1%. And you know who doesn't need college? The top 1%. By the time they get to college, they have amazing educations. They have amazing contacts. Their parents can loan them money for a house or a business. It's the bottom 90 percent that really need college. And the worst thing about all this is me and my colleagues, through a mix of arrogance and self-aggrandizement, have become totally drunk on this bullshit rejectionist luxury positioning where we stand up and applaud our dean when our dean announces we rejected 92 percent of our applicants this year. And we're all like, well done. Well done, what the fuck? I mean, that's that's like the head of a homeless shelter bragging that he or she turned away nine and 10 people that showed up last night. That means your daughter's not getting in. I mean, maybe you think your daughter's exceptional, maybe she is, but there's a 99% chance she's not in the top 1%. And the most criminal thing about this is that we could easily expand our freshman seats. Harvard's sitting on a GDP I'm sorry, uh, an endowment that if you stacked it in $1 bills, it would hit the carmen line. The virtual Virgin Orbital 1 spacecraft would run into it, but they can't figure out a way to have a freshman class bigger than 1500 students. I mean it's just it's just we can scale Salesforce 20% a year, we can scale Snowflake 40% a year, but we can't grow the University of North Carolina more than 0.4% a year. The incentives are all wrong. Once you're in, once you have your degree, you don't want anyone else getting into your university. Once you have a home, you show up to the local development board and try and try and you know kibosh any new housing developments. Once you have a tech company, you weaponize government to ensure small companies have got out of the crib. And it's this rejectionist luxury positioning at universities is the most un-American thing imaginable. America is not about identifying or trying to identify the top 1% and turn them into billionaires. America is about taking the bottom 90% and giving them a chance to be a millionaire. That's what America is. Mm -hmm. So I think at universities, we need to lead the way. We're the tip of the spear for America. Most movements in America start at the university level, and this rejectionist movement started at universities, and we need to absolutely push back on it and fall back in love with the unremarkables. Me and my colleagues have become so drunk on self-aggrandizement and arrogance because we already have our degrees, we already have our positions there we have to realize we're public servants. We're not Chanel bags.
0: Yeah. And also the tuition has gone up. Um, You could also point to like administrative bloat at universities. And Mm -hmm. we did have the recent um, student loan debt forgiveness, which a lot of there's been, you know, some people are happy with it. Some people are very critical of it. And it makes you wonder, like, doesn't really address the bigger problem here. Like, What do you think? If they expand seats, couldn't they just have a much more attractive price point from a tuition perspective, like a lower tuition?
1: Yeah, you and I are siblings from another mother on this. So I think the student debt forgiveness was terrible legislation. And that is, okay, we shrunk the tumor 40%, but the tumor begins growing again tomorrow. We haven't addressed the underlying cancer. The underlying cancer is the growth in the you know, runaway uh, increase in costs. And supported by a luxury positioning that creates the strongest brands in the world are not Amazon and Apple. That's ridiculous. Strongest brands in the world are MIT and Stanford. No one no one spends $300 million to put their name on the side of a building in the Cupertino campus of Apple. You know, the, the ultimate luxury good isn't a Ferrari or, a, or an Al, the Alhambra necklace from Van Cleef and Arpel. The ultimate luxury is if you're a really successful person living overseas and you send your kid to a Ivy League school and you pay three, four hundred thousand dollars at 90 points of margin to the host institution such that you can say uh, my kid got a degree at Cornell, whatever it might be. So you have a uh, uh, massive student debt across the middle class, kids who are not rich uh, because their parents have decided they failed unless they get their kids through school. So you've had this transfer of a trillion and a half dollars in wealth from middle class homes to the endowments and faculty. Of universities who've maintained this very successful business strategy of artificially constraining supply for a luxury positioning. My class, actually, 300 and I don't know, 350 kids paying 7,000 bucks a piece. That's two, what is that, $2.45 million for me to listen to me do this for 12 nights. The margins have to be 98 points. The gross margins have to be 98 points. And I tried to find another brand or another product that had a $2 million price point at those kinds of margins. And the only thing I could find was this life-saving gene therapy drug called Solgensma. There's this rare autoimmune disease that attacks your mus- muscles and is imminent death. You take two doses of this thing, you're cured. Done. You're fine. costs $2.1 million so either save your life from imminent death or brand strategy with Scott Galloway and I think both of those things are kind of morally corrupt that people have to make those decisions so we have um, schools that continue to add costs and administrative blow we have leadership and ethics departments I can't teach my 15 year old to be ethical it's too late but I'm going to tell a 27 year old how to be ethical and we create all these departments That have no measurable outcomes and we hire really nice formerly important people and we pay them well and these costs never go away diversity and inclusion departments diversity and inclusiveness is a really wonderful thing how do we make these universities more diverse we lower the costs and expand the seats so we can allow in a more diverse student body we don't have diversity and inclusion departments in the most diverse and inclusive places in the world and these costs never go away and the administrative bloat and the costs have exploded. The Rolexification of these university campuses. When I went to UCLA, it was a shitty facility. My Barrows Hall, where I got my MBA, was a terrible building. The paint was coming off the walls. And guess what? My tuition was $2,000 a year. Now it, looks like, now it looks like a Mandarin Oriental Berkeley. Great. Okay. But I, I take us back. Take us back to shitty facilities. And you have to wait in line to get your grades or whatever it is and the tuition is 1000 or 2000 bucks a year. These are, again, uh, we need to be cramming my, many more people through these universities. I think you could have taken a fraction of that $700 billion of uh, student loan uh, costs or the cost of that legislation. Say you're taking $300 billion, and I think what you could have done is a grand bargain. Go to our great public universities that educate two and three students in America, and say, All right, we need you to expand your freshman seat 6% a year in the next 10 years. We need you to lower costs 2% a year, and we're going to help you pay for it through a series of investments in technology and infrastructure. Because the dirty secret about classes at universities is 50% of them can be taken online with no decrease in quality, maybe even increase in quality if you really got savvy with the technology. And the social and leadership stuff that all the administrators claim they lose on, no. Kids scale that stuff really well on their own. They will find ways to get drunk, make connections, have special interest groups, run for elections, go to football games. They'll do that on their own. You double the supply overnight with technology, and you say also you need a massive investment in what we talked about previously, and that is is non-traditional vocational programs. And where does that get you in 10 years on less than that $300 billion. You get to double the number of freshman seats, add on an inflation-adjusted basis, half the cost. We need to go back to the future. There needs to be, college isn't for everyone, but the opportunity to go to college should be for most people. And some sort of certification run through our public universities, even if it's a one year degree in cybersecurity, could have an enormous utility for a lot of people. So I think that this was poor legislation. If you're going to ask the two thirds of people who didn't go to college to pay for a $700 billion program, you need to at least tell them there's going to be systemic change. And this is not systemic change. This is just, okay, let's shrink shrink the tumor 40% and then it begins growing again tomorrow.
0: I agree with you, and I think you're, you're making a ton of sense. And I also just feel like we don't need all the fancy amenities and student units. I don't recall ever using that crap when I was in college uh, personally and just kind of, you know. Where did you
1: go to school Jay?
0: University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
1: They, UNC Chapel out Hill, of state,
0: okay. Yeah, out of state. But they do do a great job, um, you know, reserving a ton of space for the residents of North Carolina 100%. and really great tuition prices. Yeah. Um, UNC
1: is a great example. UNC is yeah. a gift. UNC is literally like a pharmaceutical. And that is, imagine you had a pill that made you less likely to be suffer from depression the rest of your life, more likely to get married, more likely to have kids, more likely that those kids will grow up in a loving household, less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to be obese. Wouldn't you wanna give that pill to more people? Yep. That pill is called the University of North Carolina. And we've decided we can't give it to that many people. The, the federal government, the UNC is a gift. And it's not only a gift economically, it's a gift emotionally and psychologically going to see those basketball games, being at a beautiful campus, marinating, figuring out who you are, falling in love, getting your heart broken, finding out there are kids that are much better at you in chemistry than th- that. You're not the smartest person in the world, you know, finding out what it means to, to push the boundaries, getting drunk, throwing up, figuring out your limits. All that shit is so valuable for young people and they have this incredible pharmaceutical called UNC, but we're only growing at 0.4% a year. And you know, North Carolina says, look, we're doing our best. We keep lowering taxes. We don't have the money. The federal government should step in and say, okay, UNC, here's the deal. Double your freshman seats over the next 10 years, and we'll pay for the infrastructure investments to enable that. That is, That would be long-term, the best thing we could do, not only for North Carolina, but the nation. And instead, we're like, "Oh no, let's 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 turn it into a luxury brand." I just think we've totally lost the script around higher education.
0: That was the best, you know, advertisement for UNC I've ever heard, and I, it changed my life. And I love it. And it's
1: a great one school.
0: one day, I want to, um, I'll put it out into the universe. I want to be a professor there. Let's see like longer term, ultimate goal. Still host podcast, but one day, want to be a professor. Had the Still time. privilege time, to be an adjunct uh, during twenty twenty, and it was life. Oh, good for you.
1: That's how I started. Yeah, I started as an adjunct. I started. As an adjunct at NYU Stern, I made $12,000 my first year as yeah. an adjunct.
0: I made much less than that, but that's okay. I, didn't, I did not I not do it for the money. Um, I want to bring up with you because I didn't realize this until I read the book, so we're going to shift subjects. Social yep. media, Twitter. I didn't know that back in 2019 you amassed a small stakes in a letter at the time, um, different leadership, but kind of fast forward to now, the situation with Twitter. Scott, Scott what are your thoughts there? Because I, I think back in 2019 you had some ideas for Twitter. Do you have any Thoughts or hopes for Twitter?
1: So first off, it, it, Twitter is more news. It's more noise than news right now. It, as my colleague at NYU asked about the and says, if Twitter goes away, it's not a national tragedy. So first off, it's a spectacle because Elon Musk is so compelling. Uh, there's a small number of us that are just addicted to Twitter. It does have outsize. It does punch above its weight class because a lot of journalists and celebrities and quote unquote influential people are on Twitter. But if you look at social media under the age of 25, it's literally irrelevant. Uh, They just laid off half the staff and the whole world has their hair on fire. And under the cover of dark, the next week, Meta lays off three times the number of people. So Twitter could go away and we'd all be fine. Woke people would find other woke people to yell at and complain about and uh, conservatives or far-right people would find a way to deny elections or promote insurrection whatever it is we'd all be fine we'd all move on the it's incredibly interesting spectacle though it's, in, it's just an interesting business case and i think we're watching not the undoing of a company or or kind of the kind of the uh, unbundling or whatever the curve the un, it, it, we're watching the undoing of a person and he happens to be one of the most fascinating characters in history Uh, A few years ago, uh, I love Twitter. Um, I used to be an activist investor. I did some activist investing. And I basically amassed a stake and said, okay, you need to move to subscription. You need to move to identification, which really gets people on the far left upset. Supposedly, anonymity is the key to the future of social media, which I think is total bullshit in a modern society. But anyways, and uh, that they needed more moderation, identification, and they needed to move away to subscription. Because the thing that is absolutely made... Uh, social media is so toxic and such uh, such an impairment on our society is the ad model and that is advertising is based on engagement and attention the algorithms are are benign in the sense that they will just go where the money is and they figure out okay the way to get people's intention is to enrage them and so in the third grade when you'd be at research re, uh, recess and two kids would start having words and then 20 kids would surround them and immediately go fight 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 because it was fun to watch two eight-year-olds have a fight Take that times a billion and add in processing power, and that's what social media basically runs on. And so it's made our discourse more coarse. You would never say these things to people in person. You would never create fake accounts to start saying vile things to people because maybe they have said that they think crypto is overvalued or that Tesla or Uber or Robinhood is undervalued. And this happens every day on social media. You would never let your daughter, your 15-year-old daughter, pose in provocative outfits such that The school and strange men around the world could evaluate her that's these you know instagram begins from a place of total perversion in my view and you have twitter who i think could move to subscription i think has a lot of potential i wrote this memo stock was at 30 bucks it popped to 55 i got out and then elon comes in i was actually raising money to take another stake when it was at 31 bucks i'd soft circled about a quarter of a billion dollars Monday, Elon ask, announces a stake, stock pops to 38. I don't go in. And the reality is we dodged a bullet because what Elon has shown the rest of the world is this is actually a fairly shitty business, that it's substandard, it's subscale in terms of people. The ad stack isn't as powerful. And he's given advertisers, all advertisers are looking for an excuse to cut their budgets right now or shift to TikTok. And he's given them numerous excuses every day to not advertise, whether it's insulting them, whether it's reckless behavior, treating his employees poorly, saying lewd, stupid things about our elected representatives, or all of a sudden identifying himself as like a near MAGA-like person. He's just giving everyone a ton of excuses to say, OK, we need to save 3 or $5 million on advertising somewhere. Let's just stop advertising on Twitter. I think this is uh, you know, I think this is the thing that's fascinating here. is not watching Twitter implode; it's watching Elon Musk implode. I think he's going to go down as sort of a Lindberghian figure, and that is a hero who got warranted adulation, incredible accomplishments. I mean, historic accomplishments. Who is literally unwinding? Who is who kind of coming undone? And um, it's it's fascinating to watch. You're going to see several competitors pop up. Because uh, I, the thing I find is advertisers and users are all of a sudden like, okay, just let me go somewhere else and post pictures of my dogs or talk about why I do or don't like carry Lake. And this technology is not that sophisticated. So you're going to see a bunch of competitors come up. I think the site's going to go down. I just don't think you can fire this many people this fast and piss off this many people without someone just saying, you know, I'm not going to, I know the caching and the data loading here is over its limit, but I'm not going to, I'm not in any hurry to carry this guy's water. So I think it's going to be fascinating spectacle. But again, it's more it's more spectacle than significant. We're all going to be fine with or without Twitter. It's only got thirty seven hundred people now. It's a small company by most big tech standards, but it's just a train wreck you can't turn away from. Mm
0: -hmm. But you're not you're not a TikTok fan either. Like you have kids. Do you how do you talk to them about it? Like, what are your thoughts on TikTok?
1: So I love TikTok. Uh, I love the service. I'm addicted to it. If we got off the phone here, I could easily kill two hours and I'd really enjoy it. Just watching dogs be adjusted by this dog chiropractor out of Germany. Uh, I love watching Great Danes. I love watching uh, comedians. I love watching people talk about social justice issues that also happen to be ridiculously attractive. The algorithm is kind of zeroed in on things I enjoy watching. I just think this thing is so powerful. I think my 12-year-old, if he had his druthers, would go into his room in diapers such that he could watch it 48 hours straight and not have to take a bathroom break. I think it's an amazing product. Um, My issue with TikTok is its ownership. And that is there is no such thing as a separation between the CCP and a Chinese company. And it's a Chinese company. And this is what I would do if I were... Uh, a member of the Chinese Communist Party, I would just uh, call the relevant parties inside of TikTok, the engineers that are very loyal to me for good reason, because I've been very loyal to them. And I would say, hey, can you just put your thumb on the scale of anti-American content? If you're Jonathan Haidt or Kim Kardashian or Joe Rogan, you put out content that's very pro-America and you also put out content that reflects America in a poor light. It's a conversation. But why wouldn't you put your thumbs on the anti-American content and then slowly but surely over the course of the next 20 years, raise a generation of business, nonprofit and civic leaders that just feel a little bit shittier about America, that believe elections have been uh, weaponized, that believe that income inequality is out of control, that believe that racism here is just we haven't made progress against it. That you shouldn't trust the government and that the Chinese uh you know genocide of Uyghurs isn't really um isn't really happening why wouldn't you do that's what I would do uh, well they'd be stupid not to be doing this and so my right. issue isn't with TikTok I think I think meta is the the most amazing espionage tool ever invented I think we're going to find out in the future that a lot of these drone strikes against Taliban leaders that their niece being on Instagram up in the up in the bedroom gave us the coordinates to go in and and kill these guys Uh, I think TikTok is the ultimate propaganda tool. People under the age of 18 are now spending more time on TikTok than every streaming network combined. So what I would say to our elected representatives and people say that, I mean, jingoist or xenophobic is: well, okay, if Disney plus Hulu, Amazon Prime, Apple TV and Netflix were all owned by a Chinese company, would we be down with that? So love TikTok, just think its ownership needs to be spun. And by the way, TikTok in China, is about pianists and science. It's the spinach version of TikTok, and they send the trans fats and the alcohol version of you know of of. Uh, and I'm parroting Tristan Harris's words here to the U.S. So I don't resent them for it, uh, but I would do. They'd be stupid not to be doing this. They have a strategic interest in diminishing the strength of America geopolitically. And the easiest, most elegant way to do that is to make an emerging generation of Americans just feel worse about America.
0: Yeah. Scott, this has been a fascinating conversation. Quickly want to pass it back to you. Can you let folks know where they can find you, follow you on social media, listen to your podcast or pick up your book or any f- parting thoughts that you might have?
1: Uh, thanks for that. I mean, I'm, I'm everywhere to resist is futile. Uh, I am on my book is Adrift American Under Charts, Twitter, Prof Galloway. I have a newsletter uh, that has a quarter of a million subscribers. Uh, no mercy, no malice. Uh, but yeah, I'm um, I'm, I'm everywhere, uh, which is it's like I'm AOL that used to show up in your cereal. The disc used to show up in your cereal box. So it's really it's way too easy to find me. But um, I appreciate your good work. I appreciate you having me on. And I think I want to end on an optimistic note. I think the last week has been an enormously important week for America. Uh, the election deniers almost lost universally. I woke up to finding out that a terrible American, Kerry Lake, had been defeated. A person who had trafficked in conspiracy theory uh, is not going to be governor. Uh, I, I think that's wonderful news. I think we're finding out that the SEC and FINRA and financial institutions matter. Um, I think this has been a fantastic week for institutions in America. So I'm, I am more optimistic uh, we're pushing back on autocracies. I think this has been a wonderful week for, for for America and the West.
0: Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern and author of Adrift, America in 100 Charts. I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and ideas. Really appreciate you coming on the show.
1: I uh, appreciate you. I appreciate your good work, Julia.
0: Thanks, Scott. Take care.
1: Bye now.